This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Of all the major battles of the Civil War, one that has been written about perhaps fewer times than any other is the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. And why bother? A one-sided slaughter, barren of strategic results, surely there's nothing interesting to learn there. Or is there? We'll find out today from our guest, Professor George Rabel, author of Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, and other works on the Civil War. Join us for our conversation with Dr. Rabel on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Pirates, but not speaking on behalf of the Pirates football team, their coach Skip Holtz, our chancellor, provost, or other oddly named administrators, uh, or anyone but myself, and I'm sure our guest will be doing the same. So with legalities out of the way, we say again, welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio in our fifth season now. Uh, we had some interesting guests on thus far this autumn of 2008 and looking forward to more in the future. We'll have Jim Schmidt talking about uh, some businesses during the Civil War and other things and medical issues, a variety of things. Uh, Ed Ayers will be with us at some point. John Latcher, the superintendent at Gettysburg, will talk about the new uh, center there and various other authors and experts in the weeks ahead. Uh, If you want to support Civil War Talk Radio, donations are always welcome at civilwartr at aol.com. You can and a PayPal contribution there. PayPal will take its cut. I will take the rest. And like the Federal Treasury, I will have, there will be no oversight of what I do with the money. I can spend it on anything at all. No court of law can review my use of that money. So what I'm saying is it's not tax deductible. It's just actually to help me get books to read for the show. But uh, who knows what I'll really do with it. Well, over the past, uh, uh, last week I was very careful on the show not to brag about the undefeated pirates of ECU. 
not wanting to jinx them. It did no good. They lost to uh, in-state rival uh, North Carolina State. And this week we are back in action against someone else. Uh, find out who. But uh, our guest comes from a, a big football power, and I can act like I'm from a big football power, too, now that ECU is having a good season. Uh, our guest is George Rabel. Uh, George, are you there? I'm there. Glad you could join us today. I uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, how is the semester going thus far? Going well. And, of course, when Alabama football does well, people feel uh, pretty good around here. I would think that that would <clears throat> that, that would be true. I made the argument at a uh, department meeting recently that the success of the pirate football team should have a trickle-down effect uh, within the university that uh, – what, whereas our department, I think, holds itself to professional standards, there are people in areas of administration like financial aid who seem to be a mixture of corruption and ignorance and incompetence that uh, frustrates the students and faculty alike. In the past, they could just say, well, you know, the football team's bad, too. Well, now they can't say that. Now they've got a higher standard. Am I dreaming to think football influences the university that much? Well, I think it does. I mean, I think it generates tremendous interest among alumni and students, and uh, whether how much it improves the academic program, I suppose, is always a matter of uh, dispute. But, uh, you know, I think particularly for those of us interested in both the academic program and football, uh, you know, having a good football team is a good good thing, though I would quickly add I'm an LSU fan. I'm not, I'm not an Alabama fan. Well, that that's that is important. I'm I'm a Michigan man, and I'm embarrassed to say that this year because we've we stole someone else's coach, and now he's not doing a very good job. So, well, you're talking to a native Buckeye, so we should be at war on that. Uh, on that well, there, <laughs> <laughs> that comes up all the time. Uh, everywhere I go, I find uh, Ohio people. For our our international listeners, uh, Michigan and Ohio State is the finest rivalry in the land. Uh, at least I would say. I'm sure LSU has it. Well, LSU-Auburn has gotten to be one of the best, I think. <laughs> that, that's a good one, too. And LSU has had a great team. Well, um, you mentioned uh, so LSU is your, your background. Uh, what is your uh, – tell us a little bit about your, your academic background and your in, interest in the war, or Civil War in particular. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Ohio. Uh, went to Bluffton College, which is a small liberal arts college in northwestern Ohio. Uh, and I actually got interested in Reconstruction there. Uh, did a did an honors project when I was a senior on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and then went to LSU to study with T. Harry Williams and basically to do Reconstruction history. I certainly never thought I'd do anything in Civil War military history. That was the farthest thing from my mind at that point. But T. Harry Williams is one of the great names in that Indeed. field. I mean, that's what brought me to LSU, though. You know, Williams was a, he had just won the Pulitzer for his uh, biography of Huey Long just a few years before I got to LSU. Uh, he was very interested in political history and military history at the, uh, at the same time. And at one point he had actually toyed, in, uh, toyed with going into Reconstruction history and at one point was going to do a book on the Grant presidency. Now, he eventually abandoned that, but... Um, a uh, number of his students at the time I was there, we were doing reconstruction uh, questions of various sorts. So and he attracted a, a pretty wide range of students. And, uh, do you, this is, don't want to get too far off the Civil War track, but it, and I'll tie it in this way. It, it seems to me that the 
boom in Civil War publishing has tailed off in the last decade, certainly. Absolutely. But we're seeing uh, at least a mini uh, groundswell in the uh, Gilded Age, late Reconstruction in the uh, late 19th century. Do you see that happening? I think Reconstruction was dead for a while, and it's come back a bit. Um, I think that's probably true of, of Gilded Age things, too, people taking new approaches, expanding Reconstruction to consider the West, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. to cite an obvious example. I, I think there is now, obviously, compared to Civil War publishing, this is kind of a mini. <laughs> yeah, and everything is a different scale, certainly. Right. But it, the... Uh, well, let's talk just for a minute about Reconstruction and why, why you think that is that people are, are showing interest in it again. Well, I think there's a, I, I think social and cultural historians are kind of discovering Reconstruction because Reconstruction history used to be pretty much political and constitutional uh, with some kind of look at military history in terms of the Army's role in Reconstruction, that sort of thing. Um, I also think interest in gender history has, mm-hmm. you know, that's carried over into into Reconstruction. What's really lacking in Reconstruction, in fact, I was talking to a colleague about this at lunch today, is a kind of grand synthesis comparable to McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom that has a great deal of popular appeal. I mean, Eric Foner's written the grand synthesis of Reconstruction, but it, it, it's not a book that's going to generate Reconstruction buffs. Uh, why, why is that? Uh, I mean, it, it's it's fairly readable. It's. Uh... I don't think anybody has figured out how to craft a, a kind of really gripping narrative of Reconstruction. Ah. Uh. I mean, there there probably has not been a real good seller on the field since Claude Bauer's tragic era back in the 1920s. Mm. Uh, and I'm and I'm not sure why. I mean, I thought about. I was once asked to write a, you know, a big book on Reconstruction and said no. Uh, but uh, I think it's a, I think it's a real challenge, and I think somebody is going to crack that nut pretty soon. I think somebody's going to come along and they're going to figure out a way to do a sort of a David McCullough-like book on, on Reconstruction. It is maybe part of the problem that with with the Civil War you can construct a narrative that has a an arc to it that, that goes through difficult times but, but comes out with the saving of the Union and the end of slavery, and that, that gets you through those rough times. You know it's going to have a happy ending. Reconstruction goes through really rough times, and when it's over, all the promises blighted. Jim Crow settles on the land. Uh, it's a downer. It is a downer, and it has a rather indefinite ending. Do you think that's why it's hard to write the grand narrative? I think that I think that's I think that's certainly that's certainly part of it. But you know, you can write narratives of depressing subjects. Fredericksburg being <laughs> a good segue. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that then. The uh, well, I enjoyed very much reading your book on Fredericksburg, and one of the great things I get out of doing this show is that it gives me an excuse to read books that I missed when I should have read them the first time. Uh, so I was able to read that this week and, and found it very interesting in terms of a, uh, a a new attempt at writing battle history. But just for, for the, the two listeners who don't know the story of Fredericksburg, because I think most of us do, um, 
Can you give a, a two-minute campaign uh, summary? Sure. Uh, in the fall of 1862, Burnside replaces McClellan. Uh, he's expected to move more aggressively. Uh, he advances toward Falmouth, uh, crosses his army at uh, Fredericksburg, and uh, is badly defeated by uh, Robert E. Lee in a battle on December 13 that results in staggering casualties for the Union. Uh, it's a sort of a false low for the Federals and I think a false high for the Confederates. So I, that that really does give us the outline there. Uh, it's not a promising story, as you suggested. It's a, a downer, from uh, certainly from the federal perspective. Did, has anyone else written about it uh, recently? Uh, certainly Frank O'Reilly's book, which is the best kind of traditional battle narrative tactical study, I think came out a year after my book. Frank works at uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania National Military Park. It's a very fine historian. And, you know, Frank and I always like to say there's really, you really need to buy both our books because they take different approaches to the mm-hmm. battles. You pointed out mine is not a traditional battle study at all. I was trying to do something a bit different, and I considered it a really at the when I was writing it after I finished it, actually kind of an experiment. And I, I really wondered whether anybody would like it. Uh, I sort of knew what I wanted to do, but I wondered if there was any audience for it. Well, that's, I mean, I think it's very interesting because the traditional military history, the, the traditional battle book, um, and I've talked to a lot of such authors on this show, uh, has, a, has a wide audience. There are people who will buy those, uh, who will buy any battle book if it's thick enough and right. uh, has a good enough cover. Um, and then there's the academic world that does not write books like that typically. Uh, and and yours seems them actually. <laughs> it, it does. It, it really does disdain them, and and that doesn't seem like a useful thing to me. But uh, but there it is. So so I, I I did get a sense that this was an experiment as I was reading, and I was thinking this is not what you normally find. Um, do you, what are some of the ways in which you thought it was experimental? Well, I didn't want to write a typical battle book, even though there are many wonderful typical battle books. First of all, I'm not a mm-hmm. military historian. And so I approached this in some ways from a very naive standpoint. First of all, I chose Fredericksburg because I thought it would be tactically simple enough for a neophyte to understand. Uh, I fairly quickly discovered that it wasn't as tactically simple as I thought it was and no. that I would have to you know, learn a great deal about about military history. I think the advantage of being a neophyte was I wanted to look at things that kind of adhered to the battle that went beyond the battlefield. I mean, we talk a lot in Civil War studies about we need to connect uh, the battlefield to the home front. Well, we talk about it, but we don't do it very often. So that was one of the things I wanted to do. Uh, but then as I proceeded in the research, I found that other interests I had, whether they would be in social history or political history or religious history, all of these became part of the story. And I guess in the end what I was trying to do is kind of look at Gettysburg as the way the people, excuse me, Fredericksburg, um, look at it the way the people of the time lived it. That is, they didn't, the soldiers just didn't live it as soldiers. 
Mm-hmm. Civilians didn't just live it as civilians. I mean, these people had families, they had other interests, they had political opinions, they had religious convictions, uh, they were living in a particular economic climate, they were living in a particular culture. I mean, all of these things adhered to the battle in one way or another. I also found out, sort of stumbled onto this, that uh, a battle fought between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, that had some resonance um, uh, as well for understanding the period leading up to the battle, the celebration of Thanksgiving in the camps. And also that when you have Christmas occurring less than two weeks after the battle with enormous casualties, long lists of casualties appearing in the newspaper. So, you know, that became the kind of nature of the experiment to see how many, to see if I could write a coherent book that would bring these things together. And that, I mean, it's so easy for us to, you know, with hindsight, to see these things in, uh, in the full context and to forget that the people involved in them didn't see them that way, that they, uh, they didn't know how the story was going to end. Exactly, and I think that's one reason why it, it was better to deal with Fredericksburg than a battle that sort of fit into the, the big narrative of the war leading to Union victory. And I think that's one thing I found it attractive. I mean, this was a real low point. The Confederates were, were, were overconfident as a result of Fredericksburg. And the, and the Federals, including President Lincoln, were deeply, de- were deeply depressed. There, there really was nothing good to look out on in the, the political landscape in, in December of 1862 for the Union. And this, this was certainly part of that. But the, uh, the, that certainly, something I noticed about this was how much meaning this battle had, much more meaning it had for those people who both were in it or who lived through the times than it does for us. Uh, I, think, and I, I think that's an excellent I think that's an excellent point, and that's one I stumbled to uh, eventually. I mean, this was this was extremely important for the. It seemed very important at the time. Uh, it seemed as as monumental to those folks as probably the current financial crisis does to us. Um, and and to people who are downloading this two or three years from now and listening to it for the first time. They're, you know, condescendingly saying, of course, they don't realize that the financial crisis turned out to be a mere blip yeah. or that it destroyed the entire United States sure. of America. I mean, exactly. We don't know. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't know. And I, I've always thought that one of the things that historians do where they're writing or especially when they're teaching is to try to get their readers or their students to understand a particular period or a particular event the way the people at the time understood it. I've never had a, I've never liked presentist history. I've never liked ideologically, dri- ideologically driven history. I've never liked politically, you know, driven history. I, I, I wanted to immerse myself in, in, the, in late 1862, early 1863, and see what people thought was happening to them. And I think that's a way, actually, you can look at the whole war in that way. I've, the older I get, I'm becoming increasingly interested in what people at the time were saying about this war, what they thought was going to happen, what they thought would be the long-range significance. Well, I think that's an extremely valid point and one, uh, one that bears more exploration. We're going to take a short break, 
and come back in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is George Rabel, and I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back. <music> 